with that, we don't want to go on too long. Uh, welcome Dr. Clark back, and uh, here we go again. Let's see. Where did I put this last week? You probably to hold it, right? Yeah, I guess I should hold it. So click this on. I just stuck it in here. Like. Welcome back. Um, the uh, Those of you who came back, at least I can say you came back with fair warning. Uh, last week I probably talked too much. Um, and this week... We're going we're gonna to do what we set out to do. This is really the big experiment here. So it depends uh, more on you than on me. It's funny. I was thinking about this before. I could lecture, could lecture for a long time on his thesis, on his sub-theses, on his evidence. In fact, the way he presents it is just absolutely fascinating. But that's not how this works. And last week at the very end, uh, is Gretchen Nagy here again? She's not the, the lady who stood up at the end last week and said, here's, oh, there she is. A t- okay, a text. She brought us a text. And that's how we're going to do it. So remember I talked about the freshmen at TAC, about how they all come in and, oh, that can't be right. You know why that's not right? Because the catechism says this. And, oh, that can't be right. I know this from my own personal experience. Well, we've got to check all that at the door tonight. It's going to be really hard. We're not used to doing that. And all we're going to do is look at the text and ask ourselves. I'm going to ask a question. The question I asked last week about the proportions is the question for the three seminar series. But tonight I'm going to ask a text. And this is what tutors at TAC do if they know what's good for them. You, you start off with a text. You start off with a quotation. gets us all right in it. And so um, I don't know. Our page numbers are not the same, so we don't have this advantage. But it's in Man and Mythologies, okay? And in my edition, it's on page 243. I'm trying to figure out. Let me see how far it is from the end of the chapter. So going back from Man and Mythologies from the end, I count one, two, three, four. It's in the fifth chapter back. Um, and I, might, I think I might have even mentioned this last week. But here's our text to start off with. It says, Chesterton says, the truth is that the church was actually the first thing that ever tried to combine reason and religion. Now, here's the question. Does Chesterton support that thesis with arguments and evidence or arguments uh, arguments or evidence, right? In other words, do his arguments support his thesis? Does his evidence support his thesis? Yeah, the, the true, it's... Thank you so much. Uh, page 111 in that other book. The paragraph starts, the substance of all such paganism may be summarized thus. And those of you who had a chance to read this first book, right, the first part of this, knows, know that it's really a discursus on paganism. right? Um, and he says, The substance of all such paganism may be summarized thus. It is an attempt to reach the divine reality through the imagination alone. In its own field, reason does not restrain it at all. But then he, a little while later in the paragraph, he says, The truth, this is his truth. The truth is that the church was actually the first thing that ever tried to combine reason and religion. So that's the thesis 
that we want to examine tonight. The question is, does he support that thesis ably with his arguments and with his evidence? Okay. We'll do the same thing we did last week. Here we have to raise our hands, stand up, and say our name, and then Casey again. And um, I don't remember exactly where it is, but later on, I think it's in the next chapter when he talks about the demons and philosophers, he brings up the notion of uh, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, and he talks about Aristotle. And he talks about how the um, paganism of the time had no, uh, almost no influence or no, it, it didn't, he argues that it didn't affect the way they did philosophy. And so um, he talks about Aristotle talking about the absolute and how these other gods like Zeus and all that had no, in no way infected that philosophy. Um, I don't know enough about that pagan religion enough about that philosophy to say whether or not there's a counter to that, that um, that's not true, but that's one of the arguments that he makes. Remember I told you about the silence? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just thinking, I, I, I mean, he's, he always gives you lots of reasons, and I, have, I didn't get to this part, but just reading a very short section here, he says that the pagan found it natural to worship. I'm kind of, I'm, that's the only half of where I am. But so I you're think, on the same page, 111? No, it's the next page. I think it says... Would you uh, read it for us? You know, the posture of the idol might be stiff and strange, but the gesture of the worshiper was generous and beautiful. And the Crookston crisis is that man found it natural to worship, even natural to worship unnatural things. What you're talking about is the combination of nature and spirituality, is that right? Or religion. How, so how does he put it into the form of a religion? How does he see it as a religion? How does he see what? His worship. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm sure I'm not answering the question. No, you, that's actually a really good comment because um, you're bringing in um, a fundamental point to his argument, right? Nature. Nature. Right, and specifically man's nature, right? And so if I, if I understand you right, you're saying he argues that it's in man's nature to worship, i.e. to be religious. Man is a religious being by nature, okay? Okay, it's crucial, crucial point. It's a good start. All right, what we want to do, the way we, the best way to do this would be to get his arguments out on the table, right? And also, especially here, because I'm assuming some of you probably don't have all kinds of leisure to sit around reading Chesterton, right? So it would be helpful for those who did not have the chance to read, right, as much as some of us, to get his arguments out on the table, right? So that's the first thing we want to do. My name is Marsha Petty, and I'm from Fairfax. Um, I, I think he understands what mythology is in a wonderful way and has an appreciation for it and says Catholics ought to have an appreciation for mythology because it's a suggestion of reality and of the truth. And that was something that grabbed my attention. Now let's follow up on that. How is his evident appreciation for mythology, right? how does that fit into his argument? 
Hi, I'm Peter. Um, again, uh, we see in biblical typology lots of Christ-like figures throughout the Old Testament, different figures who in some way tell us something about Christ uh, by their life experience and their actions and what happens to them. Chesterton sees uh, types of Christ in pagan mythology, most especially in Hector of Troy, I think. Uh, who is kind of the guy um, who's in a terrible position. He has his back up against the wall, but he still fights for some good cause anyway. What do we think about that? We've had two, two comments pointing out Chesterton's uh, sort of favorable attitude, right? Positive attitude when he talks about this. I'd even say affection, right? That was, that was very good. He's, seen, he's got an affection for... I'll get to you in one second. Let me go. I am Susie, and I just wanted to say along the lines of, of his myth that that intrigued me was the way he treated myth as being uh, this imaginative thing that even the people didn't really believe because it came from this original truth of a singular divinity that as the civilization got more and more complex and they added and added and took on into the pantheon from all of these areas around them, and he's particularly talked about the Mediterranean, that the more complex it got almost in this Borg-like, if anybody's a Star Trek fan and they kind of, you know, just gathered to themselves all these different things, that it became so complex and almost a little absurd that, that the people didn't even believe it, but it was this wonderful imaginative thing. Um, God being, I think, did Aquinas say that he was simplicity? That it was this, well, we're not talk about but, but no, but an incredible simplicity, and that that we start with that and we have that in our souls. But then the more complex we get and civilized we get, the the closer we get to a downfall because we overcomplicate it all. With with like I said, with him, the pantheon and the mythology that they didn't even believe. Oh, yes, um, my name is Joe, and just to build on the previous comments. Uh, if I recall right, Chesterton did say that uh, the Greek uh, mythology was wonderfully imaginative. It, it was vivid, but it was as far as imagination could go, even as great as it was, that it couldn't go any further and needed the infusion of reason. And did rightly note that um, Aristotle and uh, even Plato, who didn't, didn't have very many um, positive things to say about the uh, about the poets, um, insofar as they could add to the body of reason. Largely left behind the myth and mythology uh, when they went to mm, construct the basis of the rational mind. I'm Marsha Petty. Marsha Petty. Um, he makes a big point of the fact that there can be beautiful pictures of the truth that aren't the truth. Mm. So that there is a difference between the photograph that you see, which is beautiful, and something of something real. But it isn't the real thing. And that's a big point that he makes. And I think he's, he thinks dreams are like that as well. Thank you. Hi, I'm Stan Lebach. Uh, he spent a lot of time in some of the earlier chapters talking about, for lack of a better word, a caveman. And he gave uh, a real feeling of, uh, I don't know if sympathy is the right word, but he made them more like real people. You know, he went into arguments about 
whether the, the scientists said they wore clothes or not and all those kind of factors. But I think part of that was his uh, uh, talking about trying to bring them and make them real people and seeing where they were going with their logic and following it through in the following chapters. So um, I think that's a, his, he's building on that and making them real people to us as opposed to some primitive man who's not really a real person. They're real people like us, and he built from there. Um, going along with that comment, um, yeah, I think that's when we're thinking about the broader thesis about Chesterton trying to look at man as outside of nature. In looking at um, the caveman and the myth of the caveman, and he, um, Chesterton notices that the modern world has this kind of myth that, oh yeah, the, there's the guy with the club and He's beating the wife over the head, and then he even jokes that, well, how do we know that it wasn't the wife that wasn't beating the, the, the guy over the head and all that kind of stuff. But um, he says that civilization is just as probable as barbarism in the ancient, in the prehistoric world. He said all we know about the prehistoric world is that we don't know anything about it. All we know is that there is man there. Um, and any other evidence that we have that comes into uh, later Mesopotamia and I forget or, or Babylon and uh, Egypt, from that evidence we see civilizations, and so that that point goes to the broader thesis that man is something uh, a little bit different from you know, what we what the modern world views as nature. Uh, Jim Caputo, I, I'm not sure how much I understand, but to quote him on page 109, he said, he who has no sympathy with myths has no sympathy with men, but he who has sympathy with myths will most fully realize that they were and are, it never were a religion in the sense that Christianity or Islam is a religion. They satisfy some of the needs, but they do not provide man with a creed. He says, he says that further, <coughs> he says that nobody says that I believe in Juno or I be, believe in Neptune like we say I believe in God. I'm Peggy, by the way, hello. Um, it says there is, a, in a very real sense, the presence of the absence of God he's talking about in paganism. We feel that it is unfathomable sadness of pagan poetry, for I doubt if there was ever in all of the marvelous manhood of antiquity a man who was as happy as St. Francis was happy. So I think both in paganism and mythology you're seeing that there really is a lack. There's a desire to worship, and yet it needs an object to worship. Okay, so we have, we, this is a, an outstanding start. We've got a number of threads of the argument that are out on the table. Let's see if I can pull some of this together for us. First of all, he's, he's got obvious affection for uh, 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 mythology, imagination. Imagination plays a huge role in this. And we've, a number of people have brought that up. Um, uh, pictures, right? The, the importance of pictures and drawing pictures. From your point about the caveman, how he portrays that picture, to your point about um, uh, the way he portrays myths, right? So imagination, he has, a, he has a deep appreciation for the role of imagination in man. And then the point was made over here uh, that that's natural to man, right? This is part of man's nature. At the same time, a number of you have brought out the point that that only goes so far, right? That, that this is clearly part of his argument, right? That that took man to a certain point, right? That 
it was limited because, as was just said, what's the object? What's the end? As you said yourself, right? You, you're, there's, you're, you're, you were not getting to creeds, right? So we have religion, religious instinct, right? Um, but not, not, not fully satisfying, right? In some sense, okay? Now, what about um, someone mentioned? I, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't know all your names yet, and uh, but. Um, what was inter one of the things? Well, I want to first of all call your first comment. What, this your your name again, ma'am? Marsha. Yeah, uh, and Susie, right? Yeah. Um, the interestingly, it came out that Chesterton argues uh, that polytheism, paganism, has its origins in monotheism, right? Um, right. That's what he's. He makes this sort of a first principle of his argument, doesn't he? He sort of says, well, why assume that it goes in the other direction? Why assume that it goes from polytheism to monotheism? He says it seems to him just as reasonable to make the opposite assumption. Right? And so I think it's really important already we've got on the table sort of that's a beginning of this whole argument. Right? So he's arguing. We're talk, we've, we've also gone back to prehistoric man, right, or to just historic man. Just historic man has been pointed out by several of you is civilized, right? Has a highly developed imagination. He's already, to, you, know, per, you know, I mean, the, the earliest we get to see the great civilizations he describes, Babylon and Egypt, right, are, uh, are highly developed. Uh, religious, priests may have been before kings, right? Um, so now, what about paganism and religion? Right? We've, people have brought up paganism. People have brought up religion. Right? What's the relationship according to Chesterton? I, hi, I'm Denny. I don't remember exactly where it was, but I do seem to recall that he said in some cases that mythology was sort of a mask for the real religion of monotheism that was an underlying piece of it, that, that the mythology was sort of what you put on display and the monotheism was the true religion that you sort of kept in your heart or did in secret. Yeah, he does. He does say that, right? Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So there's a latent, more serious religion then, even in early paganism. So that is to say, you're saying then, mythology, as mythology, is perhaps window dressing for real religion. Right. Okay. We've got a num number of points we can pursue. Right? One, I, one I would like us to pursue, if possible, is how he traces the development of paganism. Okay? We want to get the arc of the argument on the table here right? first. And there's an arc. Already it's been pointed out that you start maybe from the best, right? Mo one God, this notion. And even as you sort of go from that, be, as was just pointed out, behind the plurality of gods, maybe still lies a sense of something more solid, something more real, something more rational, right? Um, uh, but it would be worthwhile, I think, to get the, uh, the entire arc of, of his argument about paganism on the table. Jim Caputo again. I think he said something, uh, it stuck in my mind, that as they became more liberal, first there was this belief in a god, and as they became more liberal, they decided they would be open 
to other gods. They said, you know, that's how they added gods to the pantheon. So it was uh, almost, what, what's the word, ecumenism, <laughs> you know, where your god is as good as my god, or, you know, why my god maybe not is better than your god. So it was a kind of, a, I think he used the term liberal, and I think that's part of what he's contending with in, in terms of writing this book. Uh, he also said in the early part about the caveman that um, he said if, if, he, if they started as monkeys or chimpanzees, he says that, you know, the chimp never learned to draw, and he still doesn't. So, you know, there was something human, there was something that separated what we know as humans even back then, or something that changed the chimp to make him more human. Dr. Carroll. Uh, two things. One, the, the uh, Chesterton in this section calls attention to the work of a almost forgotten, I think he's Austrian scholar named Wilhelm Schmidt, who uh, studied the history of primitive religions and traced them all back to someone and uh, to a belief in a sky god, one one single god. So he says monotheism was oldest, and this is really a tremendous insight because everybody else thinks differently. Cheston is usual way ahead of the crowd. And also, on this matter of chimpanzees and man, Cheston has this magnificent line. Uh, the difference between a monkey and a man is shown by the fact that we think it's a truism to say a man made a picture of a monkey and a joke to say a monkey made a picture of a man. In talking about the development of pagan religions, I remember him talking about there's like good pagan religions and bad pagan religions. And um, I think he sees the Roman paganism and the Greek paganism as more of a, a good kind of paganism that was a lot that basically opened up these people to Christianity later on. And then he also looks at the bad paganism like he looks at Carthage, I think, and how Carthage basically with its paganism left like no culture that the world could continue on later on. Um, so I don't know if that goes to that, that mm -hmm. argument or not. Peter? Peter again. Um, with regard to that idea of uh, good and bad pagan religions, it seems that the, the bad pagan religions didn't have the support of, uh, of reason. And so perhaps in that, that sense they were corrupted. They, they enjoyed the symbols of um, of uh, a religious practice and, and spirituality, uh, if, I, if I can quote a little bit. Please. But with the appeal to lower spirits comes the horrible notion that the gesture may not only be very small but very low, and that must be a monkey trick of an utterly ugly and unworthy sort. Sooner or later, a man deliberately sets himself to do the most disgusting thing he can think of. It is felt that the extreme and evil will extort a sort of attention or answer from the evil powers under the surface of the world. This is the meaning of the most, most of the cannibalism in the world. For most cannibalism is not a primitive or even a bestial habit. It is artificial and even artistic, a sort of art for art's sake. So he, he sees some kind of, uh, that, that people whose, whose uh, religions aren't kind of counterbalanced by, by reason, supported by reason, 
really becomes very, very twisted and all about the gestures. Um, let me just add that um, that Chesterton thought that th th there was merit in the mythology, that there was truth there, but it was truth derived rather from intuition rather than logic, rather than reason. First, first you, and then back over to you. Well, I think the mythology was an attempt uh, to explain what couldn't be explained. Hi, I'm Marla. Um, there's a, just a passage here about the poet um, in this in this kind of search, and um, he's not simply just a pantheist. Um, it says here, no poet is merely a pantheist. Those who are counted most pantheistic, like Shelley, start with some local and particular image, as the pagans did. After all, Shelley wrote of the skylark because it was a skylark. Um, but it just goes on. In a word, mythology, mythology is a search. It is something that combines a recurrent desire with a recurrent, re recurrent doubt. Mixing it, mixing a most hungry sincerity in the idea of seeking for a place with a most dark and deep and mysterious levity about all the places found. Thank you. Sorry, I'm going to go back a step to the whole reason no, thing. Um, I think maybe the difference that we're looking for is the difference is a society in which uh, polytheism is located in conjunction with reason as opposed to a society where reasons actually applied to the religion, which kind of reconciles the, the the good polytheism is in a society that also has philosophers that are interested in reason, but they may not be applying that re reason to their own religion. They're applying it to morals and ethics, perhaps, but not actually to religion per oh, se. That's fantastic. Okay. All right, so we've, we've got, uh, we've, we've made some serious progress here, and it seems to me, the Sabatino basically go to about 8.30, right? Yeah, so we're, we, we have to do this, relatively speaking, pretty quickly. So we're, we've got more or less all the arguments out there, but what we don't yet have on the table is the historical arc, although the comments just made and a number of comments made. Uh, let me see if I can set the question for us now, and then we can flesh out the rest of the arguments and then apply some... some uh, uh, get some evidence on the table in the, in the last few minutes. So we've talked about mythology, we've talked about religion, we've talked about philosophy. We've talked about good paganism, bad paganism, uh, and uh, reasons underlying man's uh, mythological imagination and whatnot. Uh, but one of the things that's still, one of the knots that's still untied for us is this mythology-religion nexus, right? Now, I think the way we can untie it in his argument is if we look at the way he, because his argument is historical, right? And his arg he, he ties these things to different civilizations. Now, the, what I'm thinking about is the passage where he says that the Greeks, right, were mythological, right? And that their tree goes up into the air with, you know, filling out the whole sky with gods and divinities, right? But the Romans were what? Anyone remember? 
And what do they call that? As opposed to mythological, what do they call that? Ah, rational and religious, I think. Right? So he's making he's positing a distinction there, right? That you may so he you make a move because we've talked already about Rome and Carthage, although we haven't developed that much, right? But I think it would be worthwhile to spend some time right now on Greece and Rome. Because in Chesterton's arc, right, um, you're going from Greek myth to Roman religion. Now, what is he, what, what is, why is Rome such a hero in this, right? Why, why for Chesterton? Why in Chesterton's argument? What, make, what is it about Roman religion and Rome itself that makes it so good in this argument? I mean, there's a lot of things we could talk about that's good, that are good in, in Rome. But according to Chesterton, he makes some really interesting points. What about Roman religion? What is Roman religion? When, they were, when the war with Carthage, now this is tough because it's one of the later chapters in this book, and we might not all have gotten to this, right? Um, but uh, in this part, in, the, in this first book, but anyone remember? Individual gods, the, the worthiness of what a, a good thing it was to do. Um, and, of course, there were multiple gods, and it was expected of you to adore a god, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. It was. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking about Roman gods now, so we're hot on the trail here. What strikes me as in the Italian cults, um, oh, I just thought, I'm sorry. Um, basically, that, they, that all the gods were bringing it closer to people. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think for the... Um, but, but with the um, Greek gods, they were filling up the sky where the Roman gods were bringing them near to people. But um, The Romans were domestic. Yes. They were domestic. Mm -hmm. They had gods of, of, for everything in the household, the drain pipes, the stove, <laughs> the, the water carriers, you know. And I, this was something I loved in the movie Gladiator. Remember when? Um, the great gladiator was holding his little Roman gods in his hand and just clicking them around. It was important, and I thought that was wonderful. Yeah. That movie was great. It was. The, uh, the Lord of the Rings and the gladiator. Now, I might have to pull out a flag and call a foul. Um, we're, we're outside of the text, you know. If I throw my handkerchief, it's 15 yards. Um, no, but this is exactly right. The Roman gods are household gods, right? right? Household gods. So the basic, remember, I, I can fill in a little bit here. He describes Rome. It's, it's absolutely brilliant and beautiful. Dr. Carroll could talk more about this than, any, than I could for sure. But he says Rome is typically pictured by historians as ordered, right? And, of course, Rome was ordered. But he likens Rome to Paris, to the city of revolutions, right? But what was at the basis of the revolutions? Well, why was Rome so threatened by Carthage? It's and, and even the Roman citizens, why did the Roman citizens rise up? It's because their, their fundamental allegiance, their fundamental tie, their fundamental humanity was tied to their family, the family, right? Anybody who knows anything, look, my, my eldest son's here. I'm going to, you can call a foul on me. Um, I think this is still true. My oldest uh, son's godfather is Italian and um, the relationship he has to his mother and his grandmother is enviable in many respects. But, I mean, that Roman matrona, 
right? It still, it still exists, right? It's, in, it's deep in that civilization. And so Rome, Roman religion was in the family, right? It was in the household, right? And so there was something really salutary. So Chesterton then takes Greek religion, right, with all its fertile imagination, right, and portrays Roman religion, I think this is fair to say, as a step forward, right? As the best. He calls, doesn't he call Roman paganism the best of paganism, right? Which is a tough argument to make, right? So when has Rome bested Greece in anything other than war and law, right? I mean, uh, you know, Chesterton comes out, comes out on the stage and says, look, Rome bests Greece in religion, okay? Now I think, actually, that's a really good place we've gotten, I think, Anyone want to add anything more on arguments? Right? Because remember my question was placed, was, was, was posed with two facets. Right? First of all, let's, we, we have this thesis that the church was the first to combine uh, faith and reason, basically, religion and reason, right? Um, and we've, we've got the arguments out on the table, Chesterton's arguments. It's historical. It, Privileges imagination, recognizes, recognizes that it's natural, recognizes that it's good, but also sees over the course of time and history the dark side of it and the good side and talks about the historical evolution, right? Now, let's, we've got about seven minutes, and this is the harder part. What about evidence? What about evidence? Now, Dr. Carroll brought some evidence to our attention, right? What evidence does Chesterton bring to, 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 to bear on this, right? Um, uh, in terms of underneath these arguments. And specifically, uh, we've, we have to, let's consider, let's consider first, since we got these three cases on the table, Greece, Rome, and Carthage, right? Let's consider uh, the Greek case, since it's an important case, arguably uh, the most important case. In fact, one of you already brought up Someone, someone already brought up that, that he talks about Socrates, he talks about Plato, he talks about Aristotle, right? So why, why, why is Socrates not, right? Socrates would be evidence, right? Exhibit A, Socrates. Why is Socrates not a bar to Chesterton's case? Bob, I'm no expert on Socrates, but if I remember right, he never quite gets there to the god. He can never, he's never able to get beyond all the Greek gods to synthesize them to one god. Socrates also, you know, the, the myth part, he doesn't, he doesn't particularly accept in a believing sense. He accepts it for the civic order. You know, he, he realizes that to to dispute the myth part would destroy the civilization, but he doesn't accept it's true. Who was it? Someone in here earlier brought up that, uh, forgive me for forgetting who made the comment, but someone said, well, wait a minute, they, they had religion. Socrates and Plato had religion, or they had morality, right? They were talking about ethics and morals, but that's not necessarily religion. Do I, am I remembering that comment correctly? said somewhere in the book that they don't, you know, he, I think he talks about Aristotle adhering to the absolute, and then he talks about how the 
the monothe or the polytheism in no way interferes with that philosophy that he's doing. So they could go out and they could go to the temple of Zeus and see about how wonderful Zeus is. He turned himself into a tiger, and then they could go home at night and they could do philosophy on the absolute. And it has no bearing. One has no bearing on the other. They're mutually exclusive from each other. I think he, he says it in there. I don't have mm -hmm. the page. Yeah, you're right. I remember the passage. Susie first and then Dr. Carroll. Yeah, that's okay. It does talk here about the popular polytheism that men could be philosophers and even skeptics without disturbing it. But, but something I wanted to mention, too, that you were talking about with the two civilizations and, and how they clashed, the, the Rome and, and Carthage particularly, something that really impressed me, what you were saying here about the household gods and the way that they responded to them, that that's, that's a type of rationality beginning, that if we're here and we're special, we're different, we're unique, that these gods have a place in our lives, in our everyday lives, whereas Carthage kind of treated it very differently, and with Moloch um, having, having, at the end, basically says Moloch actually ate his children, whereas Rome was the everyman. When they were descending into the ashes and everybody gave them up as lost, they rose. It's, it's just, it's a beautiful parallel between, or um, juxtaposition. Yeah, this uh, discussion of Roman Carthage is all summed up in a chapter of the War of the Gods Against the Demons. I urge you all to read that very carefully because he explains there how Rome was fighting the good fight for the family and love and all good things, and the Carthage represented tremendous evil, the evil of the demons, in sacrificing their children. And that was the, what the war was all about. And a lot of human conflicts end up that way, with God against the devil. There's a quote here about the Greeks. He says, um, sometimes it would seem that the Greeks believe above all things in reverence, only they had nobody to revere, whereas the Romans did. Okay. That's really good. That might be a nice place to, to end our discussion tonight. So... The point just made is there was no, uh, in a way you explain the proliferation of, at least on the mythological side, the imaginative side in Greece, the deities as uh, sort of searching around for, 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 for something, right? Whereas the, the notion of the telos, that towards which everything is aiming, right? Uh, Rome, and as what Dr. Carroll just pointed out, Rome, Rome had something really to fight for, right? Something good, something positive, something good. Uh, moving towards uh, moving towards the rational. So uh, now, um, since I we have one minute left, uh, just to remember, remember the question that I posed for the three sessions has to do with proportion, proportionality, right? And he sets up that proportion in the very in the introduction, and he comes back to it in the conclusion, and you can't help but miss it. I mean, the book is just set up this way. Uh, I can't help but see it. I mean, but the uh, so. Christianity is, as to all other religion, right, as man is to nature. Now, it's Casey, right? Casey brought up that proportion today saying, well, look, he's establishing in the early chapters, right, that man is clearly, he's, he's setting up that man's distance from the rest of nature nicely, right? Um, and so what, in the back of our minds, then, we have to be thinking, okay, he's making this claim about the church. It's his thesis. Church is going to bring together reason with religion, right? With this natural instinct of man. Uh, uh, but we want to be looking all, we want to be asking ourselves as we read and talk about this going forward to next week, 
about this question of proportionality because Chesterton himself says, as he says in the conclusion, really, his book, sort of, the, his book rises and falls, in a sense, on whether he makes that case, right? Two weeks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Question. Um, there's a beautiful story of uh, Chesterton when he arrived for baptism. He pulled out of his pocket the penny catechism. It's the feast of St. Teresa of Avila. I have a first-class relic of St. Teresa of Avila, doctor of the church. If anyone would like to uh, venerate the relic, it will be in the lobby. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Clark. And uh, I'm glad St. Teresa of Avila came up because um, I was in a class last week and, and, and there was an abbot there that was teaching on spirituality and he had a quote from her and he says, it says, Jesus has no hands but us. Jesus has no feet but us. And that is the great gift he has given each one of us. And I'm just following upon what Keith said earlier that, uh, that God will not save the world without us. And that's the greatest act of love which she could ever do, which she could ever give to us, is to share the salvation of the world, and in fact the creation of the world, as we're bringing children into the world and so forth, that he places us in his shoes to bring about the conclusion and the perfection of his creation. And, uh, and that's what the Institute of Catholic Culture is all about. So if you're sitting here scratching your heads, it's difficult, it's difficult. If it wasn't difficult, I wouldn't be doing my job. Uh, we're not here for candy, and, uh, and we're not here just to drink wine, but we're here to perfect our souls. And part of the perfection of the soul is the perfection of the mind, okay? Coming to know that which we did not know before, that we might better know the one who made us, okay? With that said, I put those donor brochures on your, on your chairs, and I just ask you to take a look at that. Uh, there was a lady that walked in tonight that said to me, I wish I could become a donor, but you know, with the economic situation, I lost my job. And I said... I said, not to worry, man. This is why the Institute of Catholic Culture exists. So that you can come and you can learn your faith free of charge. And if I charged, I wouldn't be a Christian. Because Christ gave it to us for free. I believe in educating Catholics so that we can once again give a reasoned answer for the faith that we hold. Whether it be in sacred scripture, philosophy, theology, history, G.K. Chesterton, evolution, whatever it is. So I ask you to join our cause, join the other people that are here tonight that are donors.